I'm wondering this morning if you are absolutely certain. And if so, what are you absolutely certain about? What's your one totally fact-based, no question about it, sure as the world thing? Right? That if you looked it up on Wikipedia, certainly it would be verified. Maybe you have several. Uh, maybe you're like me, and you would say, I'm absolutely certain that dollar for dollar, the 2009 Honda Fit is the greatest automobile ever made. Um, some of you might disagree with me. I know there's some car people in here. You're wrong. I'm right. Uh, or for, maybe for so many people in our country today, you're like in this group, where uh, the one thing that you are absolutely certain about uh, is your politics. Um, maybe you're absolutely certain that the problem in America is on the left, uh, the political left. And if we cleared up that, then everything would be good. Or maybe you're on the other side of the aisle, uh, metaphorically, and uh, you think that the problem is the political right. And no matter what where you're at, uh, discussions of that kind fill you with, first, pride, and then second, uh, this kind of righteous indignation. Because you're absolutely certain. Or maybe uh, it's more personal. Maybe you are absolutely certain that you married the right person. Or maybe you're absolutely certain that you married the wrong person. Maybe you don't know if there's anything that you can be absolutely certain about anymore at all. And there's nothing you wouldn't give for some kind of watertight proof. Either that God is really for you, or watertight proof that you will actually come through this disease. Or watertight proof that life will actually co go back to normal, or some kind of normal. Or that you'll be happy again. Um, the thing about absolute certainty is that absolute certainty is absolutely elusive. Uh, in the early 1600s, there was a French philosopher uh, whose name was René Descartes. And uh, René Descartes tried to nail it down. He tried to find absolute certainty. So he ran this experiment in his mind uh, where he doubted ev absolutely everything that he could not prove beyond all doubt. He, just, he called it hyperbolic doubt, where he just he doubted everything. If he can't absolutely prove it, doesn't count. And guess what he found? Uh, he found that he couldn't prove his politics. He found that he couldn't prove the existence of God. Uh, he could not prove that his name was René Descartes and that he lived in France. He couldn't prove that such a place as France existed. He couldn't prove that when uh, people turn the corner and go into the other room, that there's actually still a person there, and that they're not just all a bunch of projections coming across his mind. He found that the only thing that he could know with absolute certainty uh, was that there is some kind of thought happening somewhere that seemed to be his, whatever he is, and so that therefore something, probably what he would call him, must exist. And in French, he, called, he said this was, or in Latin, he said it was cogito ergo sum. Say that with me. Cogito ergo sum. I just do that for fun. Um, I, it means I think, therefore I am. That's all he can know. That's, he said, uh, and by the way, Descartes said, you can't actually like, live like this, right? 
because um, you actually have to go to the grocery store and you have to take some uh, food and eat it and think and believe that that's actually going to like nourish your body in some way. Unless it's a Twinkie, then all bets are off. But um, he said that the, that's the only thing you can prove without question. Everything else is based on trust. And oddly enough, uh, I think Jesus would agree. We're wrapping up our series on the lies of Satan, and we're looking at the third and final temptation that the devil throws at Jesus. Um, And this final temptation is all about proof and certainty. So we're in Luke 4, and if you remember, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days, and uh, he's doing like single combat warfare uh, with the devil. And uh, this is not a flesh and blood kind of battle. It's spiritual and it's intellectual. Uh, We see that the devil uh, is coming at Jesus with all these lies, and then Jesus refutes the lies with what? Scripture. That's right, with Scripture. And so as we come to the third and final temptation, we see that the devil takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the suggestion is basically to jump off a building. I'm, I recall like what everyone's mother ever has said. Like, if your friends all jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? That's what the devil wants Jesus to do, essentially. And I, I, tr- I have trouble really getting this, right? I resonate with the first two temptations. Um, I love food, and um, I love power, and I love glory. I'm just being honest, right? Uh, don't we all? Uh, but this last temptation seems like it kind of doesn't follow, right? Jesus has everything to lose and really nothing to gain. Like, what could possibly be in it for him? What, what could go well? What's the best outcome here? Uh, I think this one is subtle, but the temptation here, uh, the carrot, so to speak, that the devil is dangling in front of Jesus is absolute certainty. The devil wants Jesus to seek proof that God's promises are really true and that he, Jesus, really is the Son of God. And so it starts with a relatively simple promise that God made to his people. I will rescue you. I will rescue you. We find that all over the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis 3 um, onward. Um, So the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the Jerusalem temple. Remember, it's not just any building he's standing on top of. It's the temple, which was the icon of God's presence and his power to rescue. Uh, If you asked a first century Jew, what's the safest place on earth? They would say uh, the temple, of course. The temple. That's where God is most present, and he's the rescuer. So this is a highly charged situation, highly charged place, and the devil quotes to him Psalm 91, which is this ancient worship song that's all about God's presence and power to rescue. I won't quote it to you at length, but... It's kind of one of those ain't no mountain high enough kind of psalms. Uh, It has that kind of vibe, if that's blasphemous, sorry. 
Um, it says, the psalmist says that those who take refuge in the Lord will be rescued from all kinds of terrible things that can happen to you. So uh, they'll be like uh, birds that have been hunted and then put into these cages, uh, but they ultimately escape from their traps. Uh, they'll, be like, uh, they'll be protected from night terrors. Anybody ever have one of those? Um, they'll be protected from enemy weapons. They'll be protected from disease. I know, the Psalms are so irrelevant, right? Um, and uh, it, even if they fall from a great height, it says God will command his angels to come and catch them. So if Jesus is standing up top there and he trips over a pebble, Psalm 91 says the Lord is going to actually catch him. He will protect him. Um, it's a picture of a God who is not some kind of absent clockmaker who set the universe in motion and now can't do anything about it, who can't help you in your present dire need. It's a picture of a God who is present and working in your life to protect you and to rescue you. I just took my four-year-old Sam camping for the first time uh, this week, uh, and uh, we had we rented a cabin because it was for his first time outside. Um, and they had these bunk beds in the cabins, and I knew that he was going to be totally freaked out if he was in a bunk bed across the room from me in the dark. So I took the two mattresses, and I put them on the floor of the cabin, and then covered them with the fitted sheet. So I slept on the one mattress, and then he was on the one, other one next to me. Um, and in the middle of the night, he, uh, he doesn't remember this, but he just like woke up multiple times, totally disoriented, where's mama, just freaking out. And, uh, and of course, I'm right there, right? So I just, you know, half asleep, I reach over and I, I put my hand, one hand on his back, another hand on his chest, I rub his back and I say, it's okay, buddy, I'm right here. You're safe. I'm right here. That's what, that's what Psalm 91 says. It's okay, buddy, I'm sa you're safe. I'm right here. I'm right here for you. And the devil has Jesus standing on top of the temple and he calls to mind that promise that I'm right here, you're safe, I'm right here. And he essentially says, is that really true? Make him prove it. Think about it. If you jump from here, you can be absolutely certain one way or the other. If you go splat, we'll know that your so-called father was lying all along. And if he rescues you, then you'll go into your earthly ministry with absolute certainty that he's on your side. Right? Can't you see how this would be tempting? Jesus is about to start the most controversial, most dangerous, most difficult, most politically unstable campaign in the history of the human world. And it's not, here's a spoiler alert, um, at least temporarily it's not going to end well for him. A little absolute certainty would be nice, wouldn't you think? But here's the thing. Absolute certainty would come at an unfathomable cost. Um, it would mean betraying a relationship of trust with his father by manipulating him. It would mean betraying a relationship of trust by manipulating his father. Uh, when I was 17, my dad uh, got a brand new black, jet black BMW 330i. 
It had an inline six-cylinder engine uh, with 250 horsepower and a six-speed manual transmission. Okay? Dollar for dollar, not as great of an automobile as the 2009 Honda Fit, but it was still awesome. Right? I loved it. Uh, and uh, you know how, you know how you know, men are with their cars, right? Very particular. Well, not my dad. Uh, for reasons beyond my understanding, uh, my dad drove me out to a parking lot, parked the car, and then let me get behind the wheel so I could learn how to drive a stick shift on his brand new baby of a six-speed manual car. Um, and so I get behind it, and if you've ever, who here has ever like seen someone learn to drive a stick shift or tried it themselves? Uh, oh, it's horrifically embarrassing, right? Uh, you, you, you hit the gas and it lurches forward and then it kills and it just, and it's, you're just doing this the whole time, over and over, and the, the gears are just grinding, you hear all these horrible sounds, and you know that something, it's like this car has indigestion or something like that. It's not good down there. Um, and uh, so if you want longevity for your car, don't let anybody learn to drive uh, a manual on it. Uh, this meta sermon illustration I know won't work in about 20 years when everybody has electric cars, but, uh, but that's what we did. Um, and he took me out and I and sat patiently, not a word, just patiently and kindly as I just wrecked the clutch on this thing. And at the end of the session, uh, he said, looked at me and he said, I'll tell you what, here's what we'll do. Tomorrow, I'll take, I'll take your car to, to work. And, and you can take this one and drive it around. That way you can practice. And so I did. Uh, I drove this thing around for several days. And um, I did the best job that a 17-year-old boy with uh, a barely established prefrontal cortex is able to do with limited decision-making um, to take care of this car. Because right? I love my dad. I wanted to take care of his car. But man, I stalled this thing repeatedly on busy roads. It was lurching. It was almost rolled back into cars when I was parked on hills several times. If you drive a manual, you know what this is like. Um, I almost wrecked this thing on multiple occasions. Uh, and I'm sure that I tore that transmission to pieces and shortened the life of the car by at least several years. Um, but here's the thing. I had the time of my life. and. I drive a, a stick shift to this day. And it's something that my dad and I talk about. Um, I knew that my dad loved that car. But I knew that even more, what did my dad love? My dad loved me. Um, my father was generous with his car. And I received that generosity. And I did, I did the best job I could, but it still, still wrecked it. But in the end, um, our, our relationship grew in trust and intimacy because I knew that he cared more about me than he did about this thing. Um, and then I, later on, I watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Do you guys remember that movie? Uh, Ferris has this uh, day with his friends, and he, he steals his father's keys uh, on his Ferrari and runs the, the convertible all around town and he's joyriding, having the time of his life. His dad's off at work, doesn't know what's going on. And uh, they come back and he's trying to like put the car in reverse in order to 
to make the odometer go back down so, he doesn't, so his dad doesn't know that anything was changed or wrong. And uh, I won't spoil it for you, but it doesn't go well. And his dad finds out. Um, and I was thinking, what would have happened if, that, if I had done something like that? After everything that my dad had done in letting me just destroy this car, uh, what if I had stolen his keys, it was, you know, prom maybe, and I made some big ruse to get my dad out of the house and take his keys, and then I uh, took the car secretly to the dance, and then I wrecked it, right? What would he have said? He would have said, why didn't you just ask me? I'd love to give you good things. I would have gone and filled the tank, changed the oil, gotten this thing detailed and cleaned out and shined and waxed and beautiful so that you could take it to this dance. Why didn't you just ask me? It would have crushed him because I would have betrayed a relationship of trust by manipulating him. It would have been an utter denial of everything that he is for me. It would have been a denial of the fact that he is for me. And I think that's Satan's end game in Luke 4. Um, He wants Jesus to betray this relationship of trust that he has with the Father by going and manipulating him. And so that's why Jesus gives this curt response. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's why we don't test God. Because we know that he's for him. It's a relationship of trust. It would be insulting to test him. So Jesus trusted him. He didn't manipulate. And he shows us what it looks like to trust. He refused to put his father to the test. He trusted his father that day on top of the temple. He trusted his father when the ministry was hard and the days were really long and there were a lot of people who needed to be healed and he was tired. He trusted his father when his opponents wanted to kill him. And then he trusted his father as he hung on the cross, feeling forsaken. And people passing by him, the gospel writers say, they mocked him. They said, if you're the son of God, come down from that cross. Look at that idiot. He said that God was for him. Let's see if if God really cares. He'll save him now. But Jesus just hung there, trusting his father. And he died there, trusting his father. You might say, a forgotten, pitiable fool who trusted a father who literally left him hanging. That's what the devil would have us to believe. But the word of God speaks a better truth. We worship a God who's very comfortable and very competent to save in places that we consider utterly hopeless. Uh, God did not bring Jesus back from sickness God did not bring Jesus uh, into a rebound from some kind of mild inconvenience. God raised Jesus out of death. Full stop. And so after it all, he proved faithful all along. And friends, this is where the rubber meets the road, really. Um, Do you trust your father even in the place of no hope? Do you trust your father when the diagnosis is terminal? When the person you love is dead? Do you trust your father when it feels like you will never be happy again? 
when there's that cloud and it feels like it will never lift. When you feel like an empty shell of a human being and it took every ounce of faith and moral courage that you have just to uh, put the key in the ignition and get yourself to church this morning. A friend of mine loves to say, people come to church crawling on their knees over bro- on their hands and knees over broken glass. So often that is the case. And you get here and you're like, I got nothing left. Um, can you just rest in this place and trust that your father has it? That he'll take care of you. That he's able to heal and restore you, even you. Um, can you look around and can you read the news uh, and read about shootings in Texas and, and children who are murdered? Can you look and, and hear about men walking into grocery stores and, and shooting down people? Can you look at that broken world? Atrocities happening in China. Massive, uh, I just heard today that there's a world record uh, number of displaced people in Ethiopia today. The human suffering in the world is unfathomable. Um, and sometimes it, it's overwhelming to me. But this is the question that Jesus puts to us. Uh, can you trust your father with this? He said, I'm making all things new. Is he lying? The ground of Christian hope is not its probability from our earthly standpoint. It's not that it seems reasonable. It's that God is powerful enough to do it. That he's bigger than anything that we can conceive of. That's who we rest our hope upon. Um, And so we don't need to be absolutely certain. We don't need to grab onto... Uh, onto proof like some kid in a candy store like a four year old who you take through the grocery store aisle and they're just grabbing at the candy bars we don't need to flail and kick and scream we were not made for that we were actually made for shalom for trust in a father who loves us and who cares for us and he will not let us down he will do it in the name of God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen.